Thank you so much, Bobby, and welcome once again to Redeemer. Uh, my name's Ben. I am the assistant pastor here at Redeemer, and we are thrilled uh, to worship alongside you. Over the last few weeks, um, if you uh, are in the church, you know it well. Even if you're not in church, you know it well. A couple weeks ago was Easter, which uh, is the Christian celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, uh, this preposterous claim that in history, God came as a real man and lived a real life and that he died, was crucified, buried, and that on the third day he rose again. And it's the kind of preposterous claim that if it's true, if it's true that resurrection from the dead of, by the Son of God happened in time and space in our real world, well, then that changes everything. And so over the last few weeks, we have been and will continue to be examining the things that the resurrection of Jesus makes new. And so today we're looking at this claim that it can make even our very selves new in him. Let me pray and we will dive in here. Father God, we thank you that you have made all things new. Lord, that you in your death and in your resurrection have set us free from the bondage to our sins, that you have set us free from the bondage to obeying uh, the passions and, and desires of our flesh, Lord, and that you have given us new life. I pray that as we examine this test, text this morning, whether we're believers or unbelievers, that you would give us a glimpse of who you are and the new selves that you are making us to be. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So all that stuff I just said about the resurrection and how the resurrection changes everything. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer in the resurrection and you're not a believer in uh, the church or in the gospel of Jesus, I can hear you uh, saying, but <laughs> if the resurrection changes everything, why is it that these people, the people who claim to believe in the resurrection, why does it seem that nothing has been changed about them? I mean, these people that are supposed to believe in the kingdom of Jesus and that truth and power reside in him and in him alone Aren't they the people who seem to be most likely in our world to try to seize power through political force or economic force or even at times physical force? These people who, who, who claim because of the resurrection of Jesus to be all about truth and integrity are the kinds of people who seem to change their views of, of morality or their values for society every four to eight years, depending on if they like or dislike the person in political office, right? The people who are, 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 are claimed to care the most about the cries of the oppressed and the wounded are the people who seem to be the first ones to make excuses, to quiet, to silence, to explain away the hurt that is happening all across our world and especially this week in our black and brown communities. Right, the people who claim to be about repentance, confession, changed life, changed ethics. Why is it that they seem to be the people that have the worst uh, clergy sex scandals? 
the, the, the organizations that seem to do the most to try to cover up and to hide the infidelities, the ones who try to blame and silence the victims of sexual abuse. Why, if the resurrection makes everything new, then why don't the people who believe in the resurrection seem to be all that new? And if you are here this morning and you are a believer, you may have a slightly subtle question. I believe in the resurrection, but why does my life not seem new? Why has change not seemed to find its way into my heart and into my life? Why is it that I desire and that I am am guilty of so many of those things that is on that laundry list I just gave you? If the resurrection is true, if the resurrection changes everything, then why are we not changed? It's a question Paul puts to the, 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 the folks that he's writing to in Ephesians. He says, look at your lives and your lives communally and your lives as individuals. And there's a frightening reality that there is not much different from those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus and those who don't. And so he asks us to consider the question, the problem and the hope. And that's what we're gonna look at today, the problem and the hope. The problem is that we still live as our old selves. And the hope is that Jesus has given us a new self. So let's look at first the problem. Our old self is the default mechanism. And when I say old self, what do I mean by that? Well, it means that our understanding of the world, our understanding of of relationships, the, the understanding of our life and our purpose, our understanding of our very selves is from our birth fundamentally flawed. If you happen to be here last week, you heard Matt use this illustration. And I tried all week to come up with a better one to kind of one-up him, but I, I, it didn't happen, okay? But he told this illustration, if you remember it, of, of a man who uh, was blind. And he went into a hotel room, and, and uh, because of his blindness, he, he had to map out the room by touch and feel, but he was not able to map out the room correctly. But he didn't know that. And so when he's trying to find the phone or the bed, he couldn't make his way, he couldn't make sense of the world because he missed this little outcropping. He missed this little uh, room, part of the room in his mental map. And because his map had an error. And because he was blind, he had to live in his mistake. And it led to all sorts of duress and and confusion. When Paul tells us that he says um, that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he's inferring, right, that we do. That we live our lives, even those of us who uh, believe in Jesus, even those of us who are Christians, our default mode of being is to live in a world, a, a map that is flawed. Flawed because it's missing its most prominent feature. The God who made us, the God who loved us, the God who, who died and rose again, and the God who is coming back to save his creation. In essence, our flaw is that we are not living in reality. And thus we live as if God does not exist. So that's what it is, but how does it work? How did we get here? If you're here again this morning and you don't believe any of this stuff, as as we read this text, you might've found it a little bit offensive, right? 
Um, I, I personally am not a fan of when somebody uh, says that you are not living in reality, right? Or when your way of life is futility and dark and alienated and ignorance. It's not exactly probably how you would describe your life. But it is a story that, that Paul is telling us. And Christianity makes big claims because if there really is a God, then it fundamentally changes the way the world works. And so I want us to take a look at what he says here in verse 18 so that we can understand the story of the world that the Bible teaches us. And we'll have to wrestle with whether it is true or not. But look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. They meaning uh, the Gentiles, those people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. They are darkened into their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Glad you didn't have to diagram that one in junior high, aren't you? All right, but let's look at it backwards, right? He's, he's unpacking this story, this picture of the way the, the world works, of reality. And it starts with this, this, this implication, this implied notion that there is a God who created the world and he created it for good and he created it for our flourishing. He created it so that we could be full, robust humanity, that we could be the humans of his design but there at the end, he tells us that we have a hardness of heart. That each and every one of us, just like a, a baby bird, has no need for anyone to teach it how to build a nest. We come into the world and nobody has to teach us to take the, 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 the hints that there is a God who loves us and suppress them and push them down. Another text that's very similar to this one, it says that everything that must be known about God, right, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen in the creation. And yet each of us instinctually, without even being aware of what we are doing at first and being very aware of what we're doing later, we take the truth, the proclamations of God, and we suppress it. And when we can no longer see the truth, then we live in darkness. We live in blindness or the ignorance that is in them in Paul's language here in verse 18. And once we can no longer see God and once we now are trying to feel our way around the world in our darkness by our own understandings, then we are alienated from the life of God, which in the Bible just means life as it's supposed to be. Life with the full joy and peace and truth and justice that God intended it to have. And once we can no longer find our, our hope and our peace in him, then we're left on our own. And we're entrenched into the mistaken world that we have built for ourselves. And so Paul tells us that we walk in the futility of our minds. And that we give ourselves up to sensuality. You see, because you operate in a world that is based upon this picture of what is real and not. And if you don't know the God who gave you desires and passions, then you will make those desires and passions means to an end all by themselves. In fact, we live in a world that's replete with it, right? The over and over again, we say, be true to yourself, right? Follow your gut. You do you right? Even in the church, we're like, I have a piece about this decision. 
usually it's a decision that makes me feel more comfortable and, and more at home in the world because the way you understand the world. And if God is a part of your understanding of the world, changes the way you understand your desires. Some of my favorite um, uh, some of my favorite atheists to read. I put one quote in the front from Christopher Hitchens, and there's, there's another uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Sean Carroll who um, wrote a fascinating book. If you really love physics and you uh, really love to wrestle with the philosophy of the world, but essentially what they are trying to tackle is this claim that, that uh, the Christians claim that life apart from God is, is futile, that it's meaningless, that it, it doesn't lead to anything. And they look at their lives and they go, my life's not meaningless. There's beauty to have in the world. There's neighbors and, and, and people to love. There is, there is art to enjoy. And maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you are saying, hey, look, you, the, this is the problem with Christianity is you way over top. You lay on all this, this notion about what is real in the world, but it doesn't match the way that I experience the world. My life has meaning. My life has purpose. But the problem is, is that what the claim of this text is, when it says that you uh, are, are living in, I didn't write it down, living in deceitful desires is that you are living your life for the purpose of making your own purpose, which is fine if God doesn't exist. But if he does, you're missing the point. It's like um, there was a season in life where one of my favorite uh, internet waste time wasters that I would do is I would log onto this website and it would have all of the, the, the trailers for the movies coming out that month, right? And I would just sit there and I'd watch all the movie trailers. And I would get really excited about all the movies that I was going to see. And then I would realize that I have three kids. Um, I have a wife with very different tastes in movies than I do. And the reality is, is I'm not going to see any of these movies, right? And so watching movie trailers became depressing. Because movie trailers, as beautifully shot as they are, as, as beautifully filmed as they are, they're different from a short film, right? A short film is meant to stand on its own. It's meant to wrap you into a world just for a couple of minutes. But a trailer is meant for you to experience the beauty of this fictional world that they've created for the purpose of you experiencing the full movie in all its glory and in all its, its beauty. And what, uh, what Paul is telling us in this text, when it says that you have, they've become callous and given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, what he's saying is, is you've taken the beautiful desires that God has written into your life, your desire to love and your desire to create, your desire uh, to nurture and to experience joy. You've taken those movie trailers and you've made them absolute. But what those things are really meant to do, what those desires are really meant to do is to point you to its full, real satisfaction, to our real purpose to bring truth and beauty and justice into God's world, to be a part of his coming kingdom. So why does it matter? 
Why does it matter if we got this wrong? Well, if you're uh, here today and you're not a Christian, what uh, Paul's claim should be here is, is it should unsettle you enough that you wanna wrestle with this question that maybe just maybe there is more to this life, that maybe there just maybe there's more to the Christian life than what you've seen from the outside looking in. And if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus who is frustrated at the lack of change that is occurring in your life, which should be every Christian in this room, then the, the, then the text here is demanding that we pay attention to the stories we tell ourselves. That maybe your instincts are not what you wanna trust. The, that maybe what comes most naturally to you is not what you need to orient your life around, but something else. And that brings us to our hope. Our hope is not in fulfilling all of our desires, but our hope, our hope is that we can be made new. What Paul here calls the new self, right? And the hope is that, is that this new self is reality as God made it. So what is it? Or actually, the first question I'm going to ask is, what is, the re- what is the new self not? You see, there's a way of reading this text, and maybe you've heard Christians talk about this, talk like this before, where it, it sounds very much like a New, Year's list, a New Year's resolutions list, right? Or a way of, of behavioral modification. Stop doing these things that all those bad, nasty, ugly non-Christians do, and start doing all the, the good, holy, righteous things that Christians do. But you notice here that filled up in this text is this notion that we are are given this new self. In fact, the, the key turning phrase here is that you will be renewed, right? You notice the tense there, if I can be a little grammar nerd here, right? The be renewed is a passive phrase. It is not something that you decide to do one morning as you wake up and decide to be a better person. It is something that is done to you. And the Christian claim is is that it is the resurrection of Jesus. It is the transformation of the world that Jesus brought that gives you a new pair of clothes to put on. How does it work? What does it look like? Because Jesus died and, and yet our lives don't seem to change all that much or they seem to change really slowly. So how do we Deal with the tension, right? The tension that all things have been made new and yet life doesn't feel that way all the time. I think it's a little bit uh, like this experience that I'll have, that I'll tell you about. So most of my adult life, I have lived as close to the center of a city as possible, right? Whether that's here in Memphis or in St. Louis or Chicago, even when I lived in a a little town of of 60,000 people, I lived as close to the town square as could be. And thus, I have some habits and some rituals, and you might have similar ones. When I go and I park my car at some place in the middle of a city, I have uh, an understanding that there's going to be a number of people who walk past my car. And so there are things that I do when I park my car without even thinking about it, as I look over in my seat in the, um, you know, the passenger side seat, right? Because I don't want to leave a wallet sitting in the passenger side seat for anyone to walk by and see. I don't want to leave a laptop sitting in the passenger side seat for anyone to see. 
Because if enough people walk past, presumably there may be one who would like to take a free wallet or a free laptop or maybe take a free car for a test drive. And so I check to make sure that there's no valuables left in the visible front seat. I I get out of the car and instinctually I lock the car. Do y'all do this? Sometimes I lock the car when I still need to get my bag from the back seat. So I get out, lock the car, and then go to open the door and I locked myself out, right? And I have to unlock the car, get my bag, put it back and lock the car again. It's a common everyday ritual things you do. What gets weird is when I go to my parents' house because my parents do not live in the city. In fact, my parents live uh, intentionally so isolated from, uh, the, the, from other people that like even if we, before GPS and especially before cell phones, like nobody on earth could find our house when we told them how to get to our house, right? We, they, my parents live up this little gravel driveway um, up on over this hill where you can't even see the house from the road. There is nobody that is going to walk past my car. There's nobody that's going to be tempted to take anything from me because there's nobody there, what do I do? First thing when I get out of the car at my parents' house, I look over in the front seat, make sure that nothing is valuable to be stolen. I get out of my car and I lock the door uh, to make sure that I am safe and I am protected, but there's nothing there to be protected from. I've oriented my life about protecting myself from a danger that doesn't exist. And as as Paul is laying this out for you, he is saying these habits. When you've viewed your world and you've lived your life long enough, you've developed habits that are about protecting yourself, protecting yourself from feeling purposeless, feeling inconsequential, right? You've protected yourself from feeling alone. And so when you feel that someone has slighted you, anger curses through you and you explode to dominate them, to hush them, to quiet their voices, right? When when feelings of inadequacy and or insecurity well up, you find some way to deaden that pain, right? Whether that's through through, uh, exercise or whether that's through uh, drinking or whether that's through sex, you find something that makes you feel like you are valuable, that you are our home, that you find a way to protect yourself. But what the resurrection does, what the renewing of our mind does is it says you are valuable. You are loved. You are cared for. You are protected. And you don't need, you don't need to respond as someone who does not know their purpose of God. And so he tells us, In verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Because if if we can be reminded of the reality that God exists in the world, if we can be reminded that the resurrection is true, then our map of the world is set straight. And then we can make sense of our desires and our longings. And once we're renewed in the spirit of our mind, Once the story of Jesus, once our hearts have been refreshed in him, then we can make change happen in our lives. Then the spirit of God will make change happen 
in our lives. But the importance, the, 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 the order of things is important here, right? If, if you try to make change, if you try to make modifications to the way you live, before you understand the story of Jesus, then you will get nowhere. You'll be frustrated, you'll be burnt out, you'll hide your sin and you'll hide who you really are. But if you understand who Jesus is, if you uh, are wrapped up in a community that reminds you, right, of his goodness, if you hear the story uh, of his world, if you sing songs that say, is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Well, then the world is a little bit different. It becomes a, a way of, of when I go to my parents' house, right, and I drive up this gravel drive, and I'm taking note of, of seeing the world as it really is. I'm seeing that there is no humans in my midst. As I get out of my car um, and, and I, I see my dad, I know that I am in a place that is protected from those who, are around, who, would, who would steal from me, right? When I'm in a place and I, and I remind myself of that, then I can pull out my keys when I get out and I, I hold the key fob in my hand, but I don't have to click the lock button to protect myself because I know that the world is different than my habits would change. So if you want to make change in your life, what God has given you is he has given you ways to cultivate and remind yourself of what is truly real. Not what feels real, but what is really real in his world. And he empowers you then to make a choice. Notice the language he says, to put off your old self. It's like a, 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 a word that they would use of, of putting on clothing or taking off clothing, right? That you can take off your old self and that you can put on your new self because they're clothes that Jesus has given for you. Finally, what now? What difference does it make? Well, if you're a non-Christian, if you're a person who doesn't believe in the resurrection, I hope that you consider the claims of Christ. If you're here and you are a frustrated Christian, then I hope you consider the claims of Christ. Because it is only once Jesus has gotten a hold of you, once Jesus has, has renewed your mind and fixed your map of the world, that you will be able to feel the fullness and the wholeness of the life he promised to give us. It is only once we find ourselves in Jesus that we have lives that have purpose and meaning that can be filled with his richness. And once you are found in Christ, and once you, then you can be a part of a community that cultivates that memory, that, that helps you to remember the map of the world as it really is. A community like this on Sunday mornings, a community of, of neighbors and friends who remind you of what is good. And once you've been found in Christ, and you've cultivated this new map of the world that God has given you, then then you can be empowered to make changes in your life. So when you feel slighted in a conversation, as, as, as much as you feel the urge to defend yourself, you know that it's okay to be wrong. And you know it's okay to be misunderstood because you are safe at your father's house. You see, our problem with change is that we try to do it 
on our, by ourselves. Instead of trying, instead of being reminded of God's goodness, what he has done in the world has changed our lives forever. We have no need to defend ourselves through our anger, through our lusts, through our passions, but we can experience the fulfillment of our desires in him and in the coming of his kingdom and that we can change and the world will be made right in him. So come to him this morning and be changed by him. Pray with me. Father, we pray that as we uh, wrestle with your world, Lord, as we wrestle to understand who we are and who you've made us to be, God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, set us apart. Lord, that you would renew our minds so that we could see you and know you and that we could truly love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.